found in that human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. I've got a song lyric for you. I have climbed highest mountain. I have run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled. I have scaled these city walls, these city walls, only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You may recognize those uh, from the great U2, uh, Bono's lyrics there that resonate through the decades now, uh, a song of longing and of hope, a song of being on pilgrimage towards something that we haven't fully yet grasped. I learned recently of a novelist in Great Britain who's beloved over there, a guy called Julian Barnes. I had to say called instead of named because over there they say, you know, this person's called and named, but anyways, uh, called Julian Barnes, who wrote in his memoir here a few years back. This guy, Julian Barnes, is an agnostic, and here's what he says in his memoir, Nothing to be Frightened of. I do not believe in God, but I miss Him. I do not believe in God, but I miss Him. I heard that, and I hear the lyrics from you too, and it reminds me that we have been created for worship. There is a burning desire in each of our hearts to worship. As human beings created in the image of God, we can be satisfied with nothing less than God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because of this great dignity that we possess, and because of this great desire that we therefore also possess, when we fail to attend the practice of worshiping God, we easily slip into the path of less resistance into the habit of worshiping lesser things, even very good things, but things which make lousy gods. Our spouses, our children, our careers, our hobbies, and so forth. The Ten Commandments remind us that we were created for worship. They spell it out. They give us orientation on uh, who it is we worship and how we worship and what it looks like when our lives unfold with worship. So we are here in this series we're calling Ten Words or God's Heart in Ten Words, highlighting the, what we know as the Ten Commandments. It was a lot of fun last week on Sunday and then in our talk back on Wednesday, listening to all of your first impressions, what you hear when you, what you think when you hear the Ten Commandments. A lot of us said the movie, Charlton Heston. Uh, a lot of people said, you know, I think of rules and laws. Somebody in the Bible study last week said, I, thought, I think of those as the ones that if I break them, I'm going to hell, uh, you know, and we had lots of great images about guardrails on the side of the road. I think of things that keep us in line where we need to be. So we're studying these 10 words. We looked last week that nowhere in the Bible does it say the 10 commandments, uh, but they're referred to as the 10 words. 
and we can call them commandments, words, they, they are commandments in a sense, but they're words that God speaks from his heart directly to his people. These words were not mediated through Moses or anybody else, but they were spoken directly to God's people. And they are spoken again directly to us. These words begin with the first word, which we looked at last week, which is, I am the Lord your God. Sometimes we misnumber these and start with the first word being, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Uh, But really, before that is the first word. I am the Lord your God, and I brought you out of the house of slavery. And so we, that's, that's the gospel word. That's the good news. That's the first word of the ten words, which is, I am the God who has come to rescue you. It's God is the one who initiates with us. And so uh, we begin then responding. But God is speaking to us. He is rescuing us. He is revealing himself to us in ways that we can understand. We have God's words before us. These are gifts. We hear about calling. This is an invitation to worship God. That is our response to the rescue that we experience. So, um, and we're so fortunate, I mean, to, to worship our, our ancestors who were there that the, we see in the book of Exodus, and then we are here today uh, worshiping this same God, and we have, he's been revealed to us very clearly, and we learn this, we're instructed in this as we grow up in the church. The process of confirmation, which comes after baptism, usually when we're teenagers, uh, we, we talk about, you know, how do we know God, and how is God named, and why is it important that he is revealed as one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we have this, God is not playing hide and seek with us, but he's revealed himself to us in his word. And so kind of as a contrast to that, just to illustrate again that we have always been worshipers. We will always worship. The question is not whether we will worship, it's what we will worship. And uh, there's a great prayer that's called a prayer to any God. Don't you love that? A prayer to any God. And the prayer to any God is, is carved in stone, and, and, and we still, we've seen copies of this, and you can go read it. It's really long. I've got a sh- kind of a summary of it here, but it dates about the same time as the Exodus, uh, just a little after 2000 BCE, and so that, or that's when we think this was dated, somewhere at least in that millennium. And so it's a very old prayer, and I'm going to read just a few lines from this so you can get a sense. This is, just, this is people trying to worship, and here's what they say. Without specific revelation, this is, this is what our prayers sound like. May my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. Oh, my Lord, many are my wrongs, greater my sins. Oh, my God, many are my wrongs, greater my sins. Oh, my goddess, many are my wrongs, greater my sins. Oh, God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, my great sins. I do not know the wrong that I have done. I do not know what sin I have committed. I do not know what abomination I have perpetrated. I do not know what taboo I have violated. And it goes on and on for, you know, a few tablets, just just like that. And it's kind of silly when we read it, but it's also extremely sad. When we think about this is what the prayers sound like when we don't know God, when we don't relate to God as one who has revealed himself generously to us. And so I hear in our culture prayers that sound like this. I mean, they're couched in different language, but this is what it sounds like. I mean, we live, we talk all the time in a post-Christian age or a secular age, but it's not that people have stopped praying. 
It's just that they don't know who they're praying to. And so that's part of our work as the church is to provide context, to provide channels for people to worship in ways that lead us to the God who has revealed himself to us. So this is good news for us, that God has revealed himself to us. And, of course, that comes with, with requirements and demands. And one of the first ones, and the main one, really, in the list is, you shall not have any other gods before me. I'm the one that rescued you and brought you out of Egypt and brought you out of slavery, and I do not abide competition. That's essentially what God is saying in this first word. I don't play around with competition. I'm a jealous God because I created you and I loved you and I won't tolerate you going off the rails in search of other gods that will be dead ends for you. So, no other gods. We know who this God is. We know we have been created by this God to worship this God and that this God will not abide competition. He is a jealous God. This is sort of a, when, if you look at the card that you have in your bulletin or if you've got one emailed to you, you're at home, uh, there's on the front is just the list of the commandments kind of in summarized form so we can memorize them or teach them to our kids or, or all the above. Um, and then on the back, there's a little chart. So I was telling the Bible study this last week that I, I, as an ag economics major, I speak in chart form. Uh, so I still sometimes need the X, Y axis to understand things. So it's not helpful always just to see the paragraph. I'm like, where's the X, where's the Y? Let me see the, you know, I need to see the little curve. So anyways, this is a great little chart that helps me remember. And it, and it's, it lays out the 10 words as sort of a divine bill of rights is what Daniel Block calls it. And the first two words are exclusively rights that God reserves. And, and so it's, we'll, we'll talk about one of those next week, but the first one is just, I, I'm the one that rescued you, I'm your God, and you shall not have any other gods besides me. Your worship, I'm, I have exclusive demands on your heart, on your worship. And so that's God's word to us. And then our response, you know, to the rescue so there's like the negative dimension to the word, which is no other gods. And the positive dimension is worship. Worship me. And so that's our response to this great action that God has worked on our behalf. Our response to God's rescue is worship. We are created for the enjoyment of God through worship. The old Westminster Catechism says it best. Uh, the chief end of man or the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You just can't say it any better than that. That's, our, that's why we were created, for the enjoyment of God and the worship of God. So as we enjoy God, we bring glory to him, and we bring glory to those around us. We worship through our work. We worship through our play, through eating our meals together and teaching our children. We worship by forgiving others and by being loyal friends. And all this finds shape through the regular and sometimes boring ritual, and I'm saying this in the best sense of the word, of Christian worship. You know, I hear people talk about sometimes, like, ah, oh, you know, I just kind of quit going to church. It was just kind of got boring. You know, we just saw the same things over and over again. And, and, and I realized, and I was one of those kids, you know, I would just check out. Uh, growing up in church, I was there, and I hated communion Sunday more than anything because it just meant the service was going to be longer, you know. And so I was like, oh, good grief. Here comes the next thing. It was all boring. We just say the same thing over and over again. 
And as I get older, like, I find comfort and freedom in the boundaries of the liturgy. The things that we say over and over again, like the Lord's Prayer, they have new life. As I'm going through new challenges and new blessings and opportunities in life, each phrase of the Lord's Prayer takes on new significance and new meaning. So we, we, our own devotion, when we gather for worship, really accentuates the tone of a worship service. So if we are bored in our worship service and we're going through the you know, things that have been laid out for a long time, then I should probably look inside of myself and say, why am I bored when I'm speaking to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And it's okay to be a little bored sometimes. You know, that's what Amberly always tells the kids. We have one rule in the summertime, and that is you cannot come to me and tell me that you're bored. That, that does not fly. <laughs> There's way too many things that you can do. Uh, you can go be creative, and great creativity, of course, comes out of boredom. So it's like the one thing we can't say. We come to worship. It might be boring, but, you know, find something to do. <laughs> so um, anyways, Christian worship orders our hearts and minds. It gives us joy in the right things. It's part of keeping God's commands. Now you'll notice if you read on, if you've got your Bible open or your Bible app and you're looking at the Exodus 20, 1 through 3, uh, which was read for us earlier, you, it ends with, you shall have no other gods before me. It goes on a little more to explain, to kind of elaborate on that. You're not going to make any carved images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath, water under the earth. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What is this language about hating God or loving God? What's the, how does that work? What does it mean to hate God? It, you'll recognize it, and you hear Jesus reference this when he's in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, no one can serve two masters in Matthew chapter 6. Remember that? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one, devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve masters, and he uses the example of God and money. So the language of hatred and love in covenant language, because that's what we're all doing. We're, we're all entering into a covenant relationship with God. God has rescued us. We heard the word. We believe it to be true. We think there's real forgiveness of sins. We think there's a real thing that's called the resurrection of the body. We think that there's a life everlasting and so we believe in God, we latch on to that promise and to that hope, and by doing so, we begin, we enter into this covenant with God. So God has, has rescued us, has saved us, and has overcome uh, all of the darkness and the powers of evil and sin and death, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. And then our response to that is belief and devotion and affection, and it's a covenant. It's a covenant. So what it means to hate God in this context is simply to break covenant. It's not a feeling word. It's just you either, if you, if you remain faithful to God, that's love. And if you break covenant with God, that's hate. So he lays it out there. You, you can't serve two masters. You know, you're going to hate one and you're going to love the other. You're going to be devoted to one and you're going to despise the other. That's how this works. We love and we hate as we go on and we seek to live out the commandments. And really, that's, that's the currency, is whether we live 
or keep the commandments or whether we don't. We, we live the commandments, we love God. We break the commandments, we hate God. Now, thanks be to God, we, when we gather, for example, for Holy Communion, we go through what's sort of a covenant, that's no, not sort of, it is. It's a covenant renewal ceremony each time, right? We confess and we go through and we say, hey, we have hated you, God, not because we felt hatred to you, but we broke your laws. We rebelled against your love. We, we didn't hear when people needed us, and we just tuned them out because we were busy. And so in all those ways, we, we hated God. But, but after our confession, we receive forgiveness, and we come back to the table, and we start again. And that's how this works. So the things... I think of idols or, you know, the other gods in this case as things that we worship that give us what we want on our terms. It's <laughs> when I worship something that gives me what, what I want on my terms, on my timetable, that's, that's another god. That's, that's an idol. That's something that is, on, that is kind of on my payroll, so to speak. And I say, okay, God number one, I need you to show up in about five minutes. I need you to give me X, Y, Z for about 20 minutes and then... Your duty will have been fulfilled, and I will no longer worship you for today, but I'll, you know, call you if I need you again, right? It's this, it's this kinds of gods that we, that we create that, um, that aren't really meant to be gods at all. They're lesser things. They're good things even, uh, going to a sporting event, spending time with our family, saying, you know, I hope above all things that my kids have health or that they get an education, or we, we say these things that are very important things, but they don't make very good gods, And I think one of the ways that we identify which ones are which is simply through devotion. It's through study and prayer and attention to these basic things that we just tend to lose track of because we're so busy and we're distracted and our lives tend to get frenzied. And so prayer and study, quiet attention to God at different times throughout our day and our weeks and our year really help us to identify, okay, yeah, no, this, is, this is the kind of worship that I'm after, uh, or this is the kind of worship that derails me and takes me to places that I don't really want to go. It is at the cross of Jesus Christ that all rivals and idols that we have made fall into their proper place. It's like everything that comes before the light of the cross, some of those idols that we have made need to be destroyed. They're just, they're not goods in and of themselves, and they need to be destroyed. Some of them need to be removed simply from a throne that we have placed them on, and they need to be put back in their proper place. And Christ does that work at the cross. He died and overcame sin and death and all of our idol worship that we could have life and have it to the full. That's where this great passage from Philippians 2 comes into play that was read for us earlier, where Paul is celebrating through this ancient hymn, we should have the same mind that Jesus had. Our habits and our disposition should take on the quality and the character of Jesus' heart and mind. Because, and he tells the story, you know, even though Jesus was created in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, something to use for his own benefit. Instead, he let go of that blessing, that equality, 
And he was born in the likeness of human beings. Found in that human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, this will happen for us in real time. Uh, it's already true, but it will, it will be the only thing that is left standing one day. Uh, we will not see the evil and the pain that we see now. One day, everything will be brought underneath the lordship of Jesus. And in the early Christian's day, it won't be Caesar anymore. It won't be the Emperor Nero. It's not Pharaoh. It's not going to be anybody that we have placed in that role. There will be one Lord over everything, just as there already is one Lord over everything, even when we don't realize it. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that this is true that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when this is true, and we know this is true, it changes our lives. You know, when we live as though Jesus is Lord, people notice. It's a very different way of living because I have made many other things Lord in my life. So when that changes and Christ is Lord, it's a noticeable difference. I want to close with a... um, quote from C.S. Lewis from the book Mere Christianity, which was a series of radio talks given uh, during World War II uh, over in Britain. And he says it better than any way I've ever heard. When I think about this, that that one day every knee will bow, and who do we worship? And uh, so it's a little bit long. I'm going to read to you most of it. And just want you to imagine Jesus stepping onto the stage, so to speak, stepping into the center and the forefront of our lives and our hearts. And C.S. Lewis says it this way, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, yes, but what is the good of saying that you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered into your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror in every creature. It will be too late then to choose our side. There is no use saying that you could choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.